0: Hello and welcome to Voicing Across Distance. This is Episode 8, Gathering of Voices, Hungry Listening, Following the Voice. My name is Masi Asari. There are three main parts to this podcast, a conversation with a scholar on voices in our times, a brief reading from a book on voice and sound, and an exercise or guidance from an expert voice practitioner. This week, I begin by speaking with writer and scholar Dylan Robinson, who also reads for us from his new book, Hungry Listening, Resonant Theory for Indigenous Sound Studies. Then I'll be in conversation with vocalist, composer, and voice professor Jonathan Hart McGuire, who shares some wonderful guidance for voice practice. I also want to give the credits now for a few clips of interstitial music featured on this episode. First, a clip from the song Retribution by Tanya Tagak, and later the song Between by Jonathan Hart McQuire. As we begin, I want to offer a brief reflection to frame this episode. There. Theory. Theory. Voice Theory. Theory. When I launched this podcast in April 2020, my thought was to focus on what I and others might make of voices in our time of COVID-19, voices sounding across social distance. And that goal continues. At the same time, in the midst of a far-reaching racial and economic justice reckoning, there are certain long-standing questions thrown into sharp relief by the pandemic, which also shape how I must listen to voices today. These are old but nonetheless urgent questions around race, capitalist conquest, and settler colonialism, the system of oppression in colonized territories that continues to commit violence against indigenous peoples and philosophies. Where I live in a city on the traditional lands of more than 15 indigenous communities, including the Anishinaabe Council of the Three Fires. Here in the city now known as Chicago, statues of Christopher Columbus were temporarily removed from multiple city parks last week in response to the explicitly decolonial aims of protesters who sought to topple them. This is some further evidence that there is increasingly widespread recognition of the significant racial repair that needs to be done in these lands. As I discuss with Jonathan Hart McQuire on this episode, the aesthetic and racialized categories that we are told demarcate our lives so often fail to hold us as people, and yet they can over-determine our voices and limit the play of vocal sound. I do not want to suggest that by pronouncing a hastily researched and formulaic land acknowledgement that my work here is done, I can wash my hands. But I listen to the great Kenyan writer, decolonial theorist, and professor Ngugiwa Tiongo, who has advocated over decades for the importance of indigenous languages, especially a continent away of African languages advocating for indigenous language as the keeper of memory and teaching that the fight against the intentions of the colonizers is a fight to remember and to remember language. Professor Ngugi has also written that stories, like food, lose their flavor if cooked in a hurry. Memories and histories are stories and dreams for a future that can hold and connect memory to kinship as well as to other, perhaps more apposite, traveling together relationships. Dreams of a repaired future are also stories. I am also mindful of the words spoken by experimental vocalist and Inuk throat singer Tanya Tagak, as quoted by Dylan Robinson in his book Hungry Listening. She critiques, quote, being part of projects where my voice would be used as an ingredient in someone else's stew, end quote. I don't want to try to cook the stories of my relationship to these lands where I am living too quickly. And I don't want to steal voices as ingredients. And at the same time, I have been honored and delighted and also nervous to learn to pronounce a few unfamiliar and beautiful words in indigenous languages that I learned from Professor Robinson this week. I want to continue to learn more words in languages that belong to the peoples of the lands where I live now, because I believe that remembering these words and inviting their sounds into the air has power. We squander her soil and
1: suck out her sweet black blood to burn it. We turn money into God and salivate
0: over opportunities to crumple and crinkle our souls for that paper, that gold, money has spent us. I'm so very delighted to welcome my guest scholar for this episode, Dylan Robinson. Dylan Robinson is a writer, curator, artist, and holmuch. Holmuch being the word people from Staulo, First Nations use to identify themselves. Dylan holds the Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Arts and is an Associate Professor at Queen's University, located on the lands of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinabe peoples. He is co-editor of several collections, including Arts of Engagement, Taking Aesthetic Action in and Beyond the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada from Wilfrid Laurier University Press 2016, and Music and Modernity Among First Peoples of North America, Wesleyan University Press, 2019. His current research focuses on the incarceration of Indigenous songs in museums, and he is also the co-curator of Soundings, an internationally touring exhibition of Indigenous art scores. His new book, Hungry Listening, Resonant Theory for Indigenous Sound Studies from the University of Minnesota Press, 2020, offers a critical response to the whiteness of sound studies by theorizing across indigenous and settler colonial listening positionalities. Thank you so much for joining me, Dylan.
1: Well, thanks for the invitation. It's great to be in conversation.
0: Congratulations on the publication of your book. Thank you. And um, as I mentioned when we spoke a few weeks ago, um, I'm very moved by a sentence in your introduction that talks about the way that your words in this book are an act of gathering. Um, And you write of gathering strength and acknowledging Indigenous voices and bodies rather than acting as a container of Indigenous content. Um, And that's the end of the quote. And I'm really compelled by the idea that writing or reading an academic book may be an act of gathering and of gathering strength through the presence of particular voices and bodies. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you think about that and maybe how you came to the idea of writing the book in this kind of a way.
1: Yeah, thanks for your question. I, I think it's part of a larger, a larger challenge I've had for quite a while with what, what writing is and what writing does. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know Writing is such a part of what you know, most scholars do. In our daily practices, in our teaching, um, it's just it's ever present and and in wonderful ways. Mm-hmm. but i was I was really reconsidering what um, following following through on what I say elsewhere in the book that you know for for many indigenous people, our songs are so much more than songs. they're They're more than aesthetic. They have functions, they mm-hmm. do things in the world. Um, more than performative, we might say they 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 actually um, create things through their through their doing i guess that 's what performativity is, but i mean it's mm-hmm. it, it 's a different thing i don 't want to make sort of a false analogy here between austin and, um, and and how we understand our our cultural practices as bringing things into being in the world um, right. but they but they do you know they they are law they are mm-hmm. Uh, primary historical documentation, in the same way that books are. Uh, mm-hmm. They are forms of medicine, uh, you know, in, in just as significant ways as Western medicine are, and, and very different than Western medicine, obviously. Mm-hmm. And so from this context, I was really thinking through, well, well what my, you know, what is writing, right? What can yeah. writing do? What can writing be? How can my words that I share um, do something different? Than, than, I was, than I was trained through a Western system of mm-hmm. education. So, so thinking, and I'm still thinking um, about this, I'll, I'll be thinking about this for the rest of my life, the way that I, that I can offer something different to readers um, and, and offer different methodologies mm-hmm. and modes of writing That that try and bring something different about a gathering of voices of people, a demarcation of space. Mm
2: -hmm. Um, One
1: of the things I do at the end of the introduction is to create a space, an explicit space for um, for certain people. I I ask non-indigenous settler readers not to read a space of the book, Mm -hmm. Mm and so I'm, I'm really thinking about what is what is the book as a space, as a site as a as a series of actions and and in many ways you know i the chapter i have on on writing builds on the important work done by queer writers writers of color mm-hmm. you know this is a long tradition we're talking about performative writing here and mm-hmm. and not something of course that i'm coming to on my own and and anew but really trying to think through from uh my own perspective as a as a, a stalo person mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm, what can my
1: writing do differently what can I what can I open up for, yeah. for readers um, in the act of reading as listening
0: yeah no absolutely and I think I mean I don't know it's I feel I'm feeling recently like every word is a minefield like if I like I'm just <laughs> I'm like walking so carefully through the words and I guess that's just that's just part of living with words is knowing that they all have histories and valences that may <laughs> that may be good in certain moments or which com- is complicated, may commit certain violences of which oh. one may be unaware. But I there's something that I find fairly virtuosic in your writing in the sense that it's operating on a lot of different registers and so you are clearly, you know, so skilled in the in the sort of very, European and settler colonial uh, frameworks for how we write about music and how we write about performance. And then you're also invigorating that and stopping it and creating moments of impasse and indigestibility <laughs> in some ways and in, in really beautiful ways at, at the same time, right? And I was really struck when we spoke last um, about. What you said about the academic essay and the fact that these academic forms in which we are, those of us who have come through these institutions, are trained in to write in these particular ways that we are told are rigorous and into intellectually rigorous and rigorous in terms of the kinds of citations they do, but that they are performing things even if that performativity goes unmarked. Did I accurately recap what you had said when we spoke?
1: Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I I think I think it's it's important and I I appreciate your bringing in the word care to this because um, or at least I think I heard you say care or being careful right to be careful yeah Mm -hmm. sometimes that that care has a certain anxiousness around it like I hope I'm careful I hope I'm being careful enough with what I'm saying but I think also you know these these forms of writing are presumably so so um prevalent in what we do because they're taken as the best way to uh to be clear right to to, to clarify what we want to communicate mm-hmm. but not always necessarily in their structures demonstrate a kind of care for the reader or for mm-hmm. the those that we are in conversation with mm-hmm. you know the essay can be used, I've seen it used, and I've used it myself, unfortunately, mm-hmm. um, in my own training, as this sort of blunt object, right? This violent mm-hmm. thing that really um, compresses everything into clarity.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and I, feel, I feel like what we should be reorienting ourselves towards, um, I mean, and ourselves here in the broadest sense, as scholars and writers, mm-hmm. is a care you know, a carefulness around mm-hmm. does the language that we use and do the forms of writing that we use um, have some relationship or resonance with those, with the voices that are present in our work. So it all comes down to that idea of how are we, how do we demonstrate care, right? For
2: mm-hmm.
1: for those people that we, um, value the work of artistic practices and their worldviews.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think also, you know, so often when I read work, academic work about music, it can be very joyless. (laughs) You know, it can be I think you cited um, Susan McClary on this idea of how music can be dismembered, right, we have to look at it in all its constituent parts. And then it's like, it commits a violence against this. Oh, right. This... You mean the,
1: Suzanne Cusick?
0: Oh my gosh! Sorry, sorry. Yeah. Girl, you yes.
1: You know we've been talking about writing, but forms of analysis, right, are are another form of trying to make
0: mm-hmm. you
1: know, something clear, the structure of something clear. But as Cusick talks about in in that essay. Um, I always forget the first part of it, but a serious effort not to think straight.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, that, and that even, even that phrase, right? Not to think straight, but like not yeah. to th- this is a sort of queer approach to writing, but also how do we, how do we allow for movement that is more than a straight line form of communication
2: mm-hmm. in
1: analysis, right? How do we allow for that life of song that she talks about, that relationship of intimacy um, to emerge?
0: this is the stuff that I love to talk about. I feel like I would be doing a disservice if I did not ask you to speak a little bit about <laughs> the content of the book. But maybe you could tell us about the title, um, Hungry Listening, and and how you arrived at that um, and, and what that uh, opens up for you in terms of that set of words together.
1: Absolutely. Thank you. So... The, the word that we, uh, Stalo people, most Coast Salish communities, actually, across mm-hmm. the west coast of what's now called Canada, uh, most of our communities use the word Hulitam to, to name settlers, newcomers that came to our territories.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And this word Hulitam means, means newcomers or settlers, but it, it actually means starving people.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and it means starving people because the first major influx of newcomers to our territories was with the gold rush and one of the uh, bits of historical documentation i bring into the book uh, by keith thor carlson is a documentation of this first major influx of newcomers to our territories who are prospectors prospectors coming to to search for gold you know starvation and gold fever right mm-hmm. as it was called
2: yeah
1: by the thousands and arriving um, in in this very significant number something like thirty thousand over the period of a number of months
0: wow
1: not all of whom stayed in our territories but some of whom moved north uh, but you know this is really significant and and there are you know stories of of folks waking up uh, going to the river and just finding the entire um, riverbed sort of you know along the river completely taken up by by newcomers wow so yeah this was a a, a real a real state of um, change i mean a real time of change and that starvation was felt palpably by by our people of, mm-hmm. of these you know, the newcomers to our territories, but and also the, also because they were literally starved, malnourished, right mm. in their in their travels. Um, so I, I I've thought a lot about this term that we use, huilitum, and um, the ways in which that starvation isn't isn't just a historical um, point in time, but a perceptual state. So that starvation continues in the way that people are um, starved for knowledge, starved for uh, cultural practice, for that results in appropriation. Um, mm-hmm. the, the ways that are the ways that we even as scholars go into mine knowledge that will support our arguments <laughs> It's a kind of extraction, extractivism, as Leanne Simpson calls it. That yeah. really, that really permeates a lot of what we do. So I was interested to, to, to think about the starvation in terms of listening. And so the, the title Hungry Listening comes from, is another way of saying uh, settler colonial listening, mm-hmm. um, but hungry and, and starving are really those states that I wanted to focus on and think think otherwise about. How do we move beyond this this foundational form of perception that I, that I have to say is not just limited to um, you know uh, white settler folks uh, mm-hmm. you know I have learned this through my own education. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have uh, really struggled with how to move beyond this extractive relationship to um, to finding content that has some use for me, finding content as a resource that i can um, that can have as my own. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it continues, you know, I still, I still am thinking about the ways that this permeates so much of my orientation toward the world and how I move beyond this to more resurgent forms of perception, mm-hmm. more resurgent ways of, of living.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. I have really experienced reading your book as a kind of listening and i think because you write about it as a gathering and a gathering of voices and there's a rhythm to how you have opened up just to your prose in in some places and and the more poetic forms that are incorporated as well that have required me to go more slowly i tend to read really fast (laughs) as many of us do i tend to read super fast and I have not been reading your book fast. And I feel there's something about it that feels engaged with time in a different way. I just I've really been struck by the pace at which I've been engaging with your work. And also because, you know, here we are in the summer, I have a long list of books that I am meant to be reading. And I I wanted to ask you if you have any advice for how I or anyone else might think about reading and engaging or being with the gathering of words and voices that a book may be in a way that is not about consumption and extraction. Um, I know this is kind of the whole project of your book, <laughs> but okay. maybe you maybe you have some sort of uh, help <laughs>
1: for me. Oh, no, I mean, I yeah, I, I, I'd love to think more about that. I think it's a... Yeah, it's a question that I also struggle with. I mean, we have we have so much to read. The mm-hmm. system, the system that we participate in as as scholars, um, is predicated on moving through material quickly. I remember I remember when I was a grad student at the University of Victoria. I was doing my my master's degree, and um, one of the musicology courses. I think it was on historiography had, uh, you know, a number of books on the reading list per week. Mm-hmm. And the, the professor, and this is the norm, a lot mm-hmm. of the time, and the professor said, well, yes, I do expect you to read through all of these. Yes, I do know that it's, prob- that it's too much to read, um, but this is something you're going to have to acclimatize to. Right, yeah. And I, I learned so much um, from what I read, from the, you know, it was a, a massive amount of, of musicological scholarship. Yeah. And I also learned techniques of moving through quickly, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and some of those yes serve us when we have to when we have to do that as part of our, our jobs. But I also think uh, how do like you in the question you asked how do we how do we spend our time differently with with words? And and there are some texts that I think um, require that. And there are some text or
0: merit it more more than, yes, than I mean, others no I mean both both, both yeah mm-hmm.
1: to, <laughs> there are some texts that we we probably feel oh no I really do want to move through this quickly <laughs>
0: <laughs> right yes that's, that's true. true for my own for my own sanity I really shouldn't dwell yes,
1: here absolutely or or because it's uh, because the histories are um, close to us in their violence and and maybe we, we cannot right of our health spend the kind of time that that that, that, you know would would be detrimental to us Mm -hmm. so yeah there i think there there are there's there's a need for us to to consider different ways of spending time with with the words um some of the words (laughs) 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 around when when we should do that maybe maybe that's that's actually the, the the best thing to carve out time differently for different temporalities of reading
2: yeah, yeah to leave yeah, ourselves
1: yeah. leave ourselves an hour for reading a page right
2: mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm.
1: that we come across maybe a rereading of something that we, we came across re- when reading quick quickly and thinking like actually no i think this this is something i want to spend time with in a in a different way yeah
0: hmm-hmm mm-hmm. cool well uh, this is this is great I clearly could talk to you all day but we have a couple other things we want to get to look there's time inserting it my sense of time <laughs> inserting yeah. itself once again But I do um, want to acknowledge that um, this podcast is kind of framed by a couple of ideas, one by thinking about voice, and we are certainly addressing that in the gathering of voices um, that your text invites and allows for. But is there anything else that you would like to bring in in terms of how you think about and listen to voices in in this book or in your work more broadly?
1: Yeah, I think that work that I'm doing right now on... Songs incarcerated in museums falls within w- what you're asking
0: mm-hmm. about.
1: Um, particularly, given that for many Indigenous people, our songs have life, are alive, give life,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and, and have very, very different relationships. I mean, I'm I'm giving these different words uh, because every community has a different relationship and even within communities different relationships to particular songs Mm -hmm. that have life bring life are alive our beings are our ancestors so so it's Mm -hmm. really multiple and trying to trying to affirm that multiplicity across different uh, indigenous communities but given this this fact that our our songs have life I, i really see the need to recontextualize the way that um, not just our songs, but our, our uh, other material culture, masks, weaving, mm-hmm. everything really has different qualities of life. And, and from that, then the question becomes, well, what, has, what lives have these beings been leading within the museum
2: mm-hmm. you
1: know, for hundreds of years, mm-hmm. not hundreds, but like over a hundred years in, in many cases. Mm-hmm and to, to consider um, incarceration there as, as one structure that may speak to how how songs have been kept, how they've been kept away from our families. Um, you know, this is a very complex part of, of Indigenous Peoples' history here in what's now known as Canada. Mm-hmm. That, that during the, you know, the early 20th century, um, into the mid and sometimes even late twentieth century ethnographers, anthropologists would come into our territories, our communities, and say, you know, you should you should allow us to record your songs because they are dying away. Um, and and many of our you know, this is part of the larger um, the larger process of what's sometimes talked about as the salvage paradigm. You know, yeah. the mm-hmm. that our culture was, was dying away. Right. You know, right. In the passive voice sense, there, yep. there was not mm-hmm. no connection between who was was causing our culture to um, yeah not die off, but to to be erased or go into hiding in some cases. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, our leaders felt that they felt that change with the uh, you know more than hundred years of residential schools, where where our people were prohibited from speaking our language or or having any connection to our culture. Mm-hmm. And then the seven more than seventy years of the potlatch ban part of the Indian Act, so part of government policy that said we were we were prohibited by law um, mm-hmm. under you know to to sing our songs or or engage in potlatch or dances
2: mm-hmm. not just
1: under the threat of of fines but of of actual incarceration of being mm-hmm. uh, you know the, that we could be put in jail for this, and that that actually happened in in some cases mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so during this this time of great precarity we you know our our leaders did make choices to sing these songs to those who came into our communities but it was a choice made under duress under mm-hmm. great duress and the choice was also made so that the songs and you know our culture could live on for future generations
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: that that life that song life as i say would be um, reconnected at some point with yeah. generations. And that by and large has not been the case. <laughs> Obviously, I mean, a lot of museums were were doing this work of recording so that it would be um, available for the broader public, right, as sort of mm-hmm. just as knowledge that could be um, Accessed. Accessed and held, <laughs> but, not, but not accessed and held by our people.
0: Correct.
1: <laughs> you know? Correct. So, so it's this great um, irony, right? Horrible yeah. irony that, that it still is. Our songs are still incarcerated in museums, um, being held for the purposes of Western education, wow. not so that they could be returned to us. So really this work that I'm trying to do right now is thinking about song song return, but also song reconnection. I mean if if you had a loved one that yeah. was held for over a hundred years, incarcerated for over a hundred years,
2: mm-hmm.
1: the reintegration, the reconnection between you and this loved one would not just be a transactional thing. It wouldn't yeah. just be sort of this person is now free. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, that's that is not where things can end.
0: We talk so much here in the US. I mean as you know we have a Horrific evil of mass incarceration and particularly the incarceration of black and brown people and black people in particular. Um, and the work on reentry, right, people who formerly incarcerated individuals. I, it, I don't mean to suggest that this is commensurable with what you are studying, but the the, the carceral practice in itself brings this up for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so reentry back into society for a formerly incarcerated person is so fraught and not a simple path by any by any means um and in fact the roads the routes that are most uh, cared for by the state are the routes that will lead those people right back into the institution that they have uh, just been able to depart from. So I can imagine that there are so many other questions around reentry, the reentry of spirit uh, in a different way that you also are grappling with.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I think really considering um, the sort of basis of health right what is a, what are the what are methodolo- healthy holistic methodologies for reentry reconnection of kinship mm-hmm. um, those are those are really at the heart of of this new relatively new work that i'm doing now
0: amazing wonderful okay i know you work also as an artist and a curator and so i'd love to hear a little bit more about your creative practice i know you um have curated um this exhibition soundings and you're also doing i think a workshop with composers right now am i am i getting that right
1: yeah yeah um yeah i'd love to talk a little bit about that i was recently approached by um a colleague who runs a series called of the now and this mm-hmm. is based on victoria british columbia and it's it's been a concert series or um yeah new music i should say new, new music and discussion series that they've been running i think for a year or two now mm-hmm. and so my colleague whose name is mitch renault approached me and asked me if i wanted to talk about the book and we started talking about other things we could do and realized that it would be really wonderful to lead a workshop process with composers that took up some of the ideas from the book and and moved beyond that. And I was really interested to think about how settler composers specifically could um, try and identify or how we could do this work together of identifying settler colonial practices, forms, structures of composition. And and then once identifying those, those things, move forward to consider decolonial or um, non-extractive yeah. forms of um, composition. I should mm-hmm. also say composition sound art. So we have a number of mm-hmm. composers and sound artists that are part of this workshop group that we've just started.
2: Wow. And,
1: and it's great. It's been really wonderful and, and also challenging. I should also say that one of the... We've really taken inspiration here from um, a series. I'm not sure maybe you're aware of the Imaginary Theaters. I think that's what it's called Imaginary hmm. Theaters series that asks playwrights and I think some scholars as well to imagine scenarios or imagine performances uh, that don't need to, like scripts for mm-hmm. something to happen, that don't need to actually be feasible.
0: <laughs> right right well and also there are these works of impossible theater that can never be staged
1: right yeah Yeah. so we're really trying to take this as a model and Hmm. composers will after a number of conversations develop imagined compositions so (laughs) that
2: sounds so cool
1: it is it's awesome i can't wait to see what happens they they will they will sort of take our our conversations back into their practices to describe a work of imagined composition yeah um, that doesn't need to actually be feasible. So I think that's really wonderful in terms of envisioning a futurity of, of decolonial practice that you know moves us forward.
0: This is fascinating. If anybody wants to learn more about this, is there will it be made public at some point, or you're not quite sure yet?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so the the workshop and the conversations will be part of of the now. Um, okay. Their website, and I can I can give that. I think it is ofthenow.ca, or okay. that would that would come up. Great. And it'll probably content will probably be available in the next month or so. So probably by the end of August.
0: Oh, that's exciting! That's very soon. How wonderful! Congratulations.
1: And I should say also, anyone who's interested in things that come up during these conversations and workshops can write in with questions that we will hopefully Mm. address many of in the final session too. So it's meant to have a little bit of an interactive component.
0: Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing about it. So we have one other thing that we are meant to do, which is to read a little bit of your book. Would you like to um, share a, a passage from your book to read aloud?
1: Yeah, so the book has a number of more uh, poetic sections some of them are event scores some of them are poetic responses to pieces I'd like to read one of the responses great it's a response to a piece by Raven Chacon a Navajo composer and sound artist um, and he wrote this piece called Report Report is both a um, is both a score for a musical score for performance that is notated, uh, and it's notated for different kinds of guns,
0: for firearm ensemble. For firearms,
1: says. yes, firearm oh, wow. ensemble. And so you know, it's a it's a challenging work on many levels, considering the time oh, wow. that we're in. Um, you know, this kind this the violence that comes from um, from this form of of yeah. what Raven is using as an instrument. But of course, guns are also used. Um, by many Indigenous people in our hunting practices, and we have different relationships, and and so I, I also want to mention that here too. Yeah. This piece exists as, a, as the score for performance, and then what Raven did actually was record a performance, and this recording circulates as an artwork within galleries. So my response to it is referring back to my experience of this video within a gallery setting, and then also what I what I think is important in the setting where it was recorded, which was a field, um, so in a, in a natural um, uh, environment. So maybe, I think that's probably enough context. The, the piece, the response itself is called "Huelalam Raven Chekon's report, and I'll, I'll read it now. Let's clear the air. Listening to land is not a pristine act, that finds the quiet wild, not the breeze stirring leaves, not the falling snow as your heart beats, not the audience that filters out all but buzzing insect and rustling reed, that filters sound that is from land. Hear the word soundscape built upon the word landscape, its colonial gaze, its hungry designs, separating heartbeat from heart. Hear the word sound, scape. Collect the resonance of lands, waterways, skies. Collect the whispered breath and life that dwells therein. Hear Siwiltset Tamach. set Tashwili. The sounds of this land are not resources, nor the messages to be deciphered for danger and delight for Hulitam mining sound from sight. To listen without extraction. muckle. What does this sound like? Not as effective collection. Selchimuckle What does this sound like? What does this report do to clear the air, to let us hear? What does this do as each gunshot disquiets segregant sense? Now, again, again, what does this do, this orchestration of weapons of varying calibers, scored for precision, what does this do to the settled ear? What else does gunshot reverberate, leave behind through muzzle blast, as the crack sound shock of bullet from barrel breaks upon this place? Sound marks the listening land while here inside this room, this firing line together charges the body again to hear. So that's the first part of this response and I'll read the second mm-hmm. part, but not the, not the final one.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: To witness. To listen. Attention. Hualalam, listening plus witnessing, refuses listening without limit, ravenous gathering of murmur and hum, to line the shelves with sense content. Hualalam remembers our history. Hualalam, a quis haqualetset tasiwus tasiolakwash. Hualalam, siwil, pricking ears with sense. Finds ways to listen not driven by use, not by accumulative desire, hwela lam, listening beyond insular sense, toward tamuch shweli, the mountains, the plants, the water, to practice the sense connects us to everything around us, our ancestors as well as ancestors transformed into those mountains. Hualalam, a practiced attention, sets a crisis for listening's settled state. To become uncertain of what listening is, Hualalam, the willful act to kick colonial listening habits, to shift structures of feeling. Hualalam, metham, to remember relationality you are listened to by the land.
0: Thank you so much. This was wonderful. This was great. I just uh, I just want to thank you for making the time. I know you have a busy summer and it's been really, really wonderful to speak with you about your book and about the voices um, and the listening that it invites.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It's been lovely to, to talk about the work and, and just a great opportunity. So thanks for inviting me.
0: Please and honor to welcome our guest vocal practitioner for this episode, Professor Jonathan Hart-Mcquaiah. Jonathan Hart-Mcquaia is a multicultural vocalist and new music and jazz composer with expertise in extended vocal techniques. He is an associate arts professor in the Department of Drama's Experimental Theatre Wing, ETW, at NYU Tisch School of the Arts. He was composer and musical director for the Roy Hart Theatre of France and toured with the company in the 70s and 80s, performing around Europe, USA, and South America, winning an Obie Award for Pagliacci at La Mama in 1985. He remains a leading proponent of the legacy of Roy Hart, his stepfather, and is currently president of the Roy Hart Theatre Association, responsible for artistic, pedagogical, and research activities at the Roy Hart Centre in France. In his early twenties, he spent time in Tanzania meeting his biological father, Chief David Kidaha Makwaya of the Sukuma tribe, studying Sukuma culture and exploring his African roots. His music integrates experimental vocal techniques with European classical and African traditions, quote, a spectacular display of vocal tempers and techniques, end quote, from the New York Times. His solo voice and piano album, The Wild is Rising, can be heard on Spotify. Jonathan has given performances in over 20 countries and led seminars in over 30. He has been teaching voice at New York University for 30 years. Thank you so much for joining me, Professor Maguire.
3: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast, Marci.
0: Yay! I'm so delighted that Abigail Bengtson introduced us. I should have asked you, how do you know Abigail?
3: I first met her through the Trinity La Mama uh, Theatre Programme. And then she visited the Roy Hart Centre in France Mm -hmm. where where I work. Mm -hmm. Um, So we we exchanged, we worked together for a little while.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. And I will say it's kind of... Funny that I, I mean, I did my, my master's and my doctoral work at NYU Tisch (laughs) in performance studies and um, I guess it's, yeah, just a sign that the departments are so, uh, don't always have a lot of communication because I would have loved to connect with you while I was there. But of course the pandemic has brought us together.
3: (laughs) Yes, it's true. There's not a lot of connection between those departments.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe in the future, right, we'll we'll create some opportunities.
3: But I, I would also like to thank Abigail Benson for bringing us together.
0: Yay! Okay, I'll be sure to let her know as mm-hmm. well. So, um, great. So, you know, this is a time for um, us just to talk about what you've been noticing about voice and voicing in your life right now. Um, the podcast is called Voicing Across Distance, as you know, so... And we are across social distance. I'm here in Chicago, and you are, I think, in New York. If I yes. have that right, okay. Yeah,
3: that is right.
0: Yeah, and so um, we can really take this in a number of directions. I would love to hear also just about sort of how you think about the voice in in general, not just during the pandemic, um, because you have this really amazing background, working in so many different vocal traditions and techniques and styles. So uh, maybe could you just share a little bit with us about how you think about the voice and using the voice, incorporating um, all the different techniques that you work with?
3: Yes, well, I'm fascinated by voices. um, And My approach to the voice is really um, to meet different people's voices, meet Mm -hmm. my own voice, um, and explore, get to know what is unique about each person's voice, Um, Mm -hmm. and then from there for that person to develop their own relationship with their voice, hopefully understanding or. becoming familiar with a lot more of their voice. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, one of the things I love about voice in general is that it goes in and it goes out.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. um,
3: even even the breath, we breathe in, we breathe out. Mm. But voice can stimulate so much on an internal level for each of us, uh, imaginatively, emotionally, Um, psychically Mm
2: -hmm.
3: um, and my experience is that the more one one connects with those inner worlds the more one can bring to one's expression outside Mm -hmm. and then it's very exciting to me that one can communicate with the outside Mm -hmm. which is interested in terms of this particular moment with Mm. social social distance Mm
0: yeah the outside means <laughs> yes such yes. different things now yeah
3: yes um and and meeting the outside
0: mm. um
3: since i've mentioned the social distancing at, at the moment um mm-hmm. it's a new it's a new meeting for me and i, I think for all of us yeah uh, what what is this that we're, we're meeting mm. how does our how do we Connect our inner worlds through these online
0: yeah. media. Yeah.
3: But coming back to the voice in itself, sure. Um, part of my interest is is really research. Mm-hmm. My belief that through exploring one's own voice and developing the, the unique aspects of each person's voice one can redefine what performance can be, what, what the arts mm. can be, for me especially music. Mm-hmm. Uh, so part of my work is, is integrating the, the less familiar sounds in the voice, less familiar mm-hmm. to other people, right. in, integrating those with, with more familiar traditional forms
2: Mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm. Um, yes. So in in music, for instance, one area I've have taken is to take, since I'm half African from Tanzania,
2: mm-hmm. to,
3: to take traditional Tanzanian music and explore it in in new ways.
2: Yeah.
3: Um, with other sounds in the voice, but mm-hmm. also with. I'm mostly a pianist as an instrumentalist. Mm. So exploring different ways to bring um, the colors of that music through Mm -hmm. other instruments too.
0: Amazing. Amazing. You know, I'm thinking, I'm looking at this bio here that you sent me. Thank you again for that. And just thinking about how these categories don't they're they're also partial you know new music right <laughs> coming from yes. the contemporary classical scene jazz you yes. know sometimes they call these things world music which is a whole we could have a whole thing about that you know but yes. all of these categories even even the category of european music i mean there are so many different things that could fall within that <laughs> you know similarly african music so the categories are so so flawed and so partial and i really admire the way that you are moving with such grace across and in relation to those different categories um as i mentioned i also am am half west african not as, as opposed to east african but um yes. and so some of the things that you're talking about in terms of how do we uh, how do i hold africanness and in my case americanist i do have a little scottish ancestry on my mom's side Uh (laughs) as well as as well as norwegian (laughs) but um but how do i hold and or live in relation to these different ways of being in voice of being in sound um and so i wonder you know you have you've been working in this for 30 years what do you have any advice, or what? How do you think about <laughs> <laughs> living living across these categories that are that cannot ever hold all of us, and the racial categories too? They can't hold all of us, you know.
3: Absolutely, I feel like one of the traps in this time is that these categories, um, despite ourselves, they, they they push us in in directions which may not always correspond really with who we are. Mm. Um, you've mentioned racial categories. Um, yeah, it's a very hot topic at the moment. But That's right. In term, yeah. but In in the voice, uh, as, as an identifying, self-identifying black person, I, I feel that it's hard for me in this time, for example, not to, not to, unconsciously get pushed myself into a, an exaggeration of, mm. of a so-called black sound.
2: Mm.
3: Um, and and what is black enough, and yeah. things like that. But I could say the same for any category, really.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: You, I agree so much with you about what is new music, world music. Mm. Um, it's a pity that, well, I understand one needs one needs these um, guiding pointers in, in terms of describing music and sound mm. but not to then get stuck in them
2: right
3: right 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 yeah, um, yeah. in terms of advice <laughs> <laughs> i i like to begin training with and 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 this can be for people who are new to the voice or for people who have considerable training already yeah but one exercise I, I like is to is what i call following the voice mm. um which is noticing where your voice goes when you stop manipulating it when, when you stop mm. um, guiding it because we're, we're always guiding our voice even yeah. speaking um it's interesting it's it's kind of impossible to let it be completely Uh without choice, but it's interesting when one gradually releases and releases and releases the amount of choice to notice the tendencies of one's voice. And it can be quite surprising Uh what happens at the end of the breath, for example,
2: Mm -hmm.
3: and that I like to come back to this from time to time, even after years of, working with the voice Mm -hmm. because the trajectories you have taken with your voice change your voice over time. Yeah, yeah. The choices you've made. um, So it's interesting to then let your voice be again, Mm -hmm. your new voice. Yeah. Uh, um, Yeah, not because it's necessarily better than anything else, but but to include it. because when you then come to interpreting pre-existing music, where Mm -hmm. you can't just let your voice do whatever it wants. Right. Um, But you can, you realize that what your voice naturally, where it naturally wants to go can actually help your interpretation. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And it then enables, it offers you more space for play. Mm -hmm. I feel play is enormously important in, in voice work.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: It's finding your own agency, space for your imagination in the moment mm-hmm. to, to, to interact with the material. Mm-hmm. Even if it's material you've already rehearsed for hours mm-hmm. and hours.
0: Yeah, it makes me think of what you were just saying about, uh, I was really struck by what you said about the voice as, as something that we take, To meet, we want to meet our own voices. We take our voices to meet the world. We follow our can follow our voices to meet the music that we are engaging with. Yeah, yeah. I always get stuck with this idea of like following what we do naturally. I totally, I totally agree that we. I am making a lot of choices (laughs) about about how to use my voice, and that it would be useful for me to start paying attention to what those choices are so that I can have more play and not just force it in a way that I think it should go. But I get so, I really struggle with this idea of like being natural. Like I just, maybe it's kind Uh, of an uh, impossible uh, goal, but something that we should still strive for.
3: Well, uh, I appreciate the question. Yes, it's Mm. a great question. Um, Yes, I I think as soon as one is, is... striving to be natural one is not natural <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> it's, but we all do it right but um well it's good to make choices mm-hmm. and and one can even make choices to go categorically against what your voice naturally does because mm-hmm. you feel it will serve the music better but mm-hmm. but um My experience is that the more one has actually lived inside the natural instincts of your own voice, um, it informs your choices and you realize, not always, but a lot of the natural tendencies of your voice actually can feed the the material very well. Um, and, And natural well, I had a slight sidestep, but students often speak to me about wanting to be more authentic.
0: Right. That word is so hot right now.
3: Yes. Um, another one is being centered. But, but anyway, being, yep. being, being authentic. And uh, one can get so involved in trying to be authentic that... that <laughs> That you're no longer there's no longer room to just be yourself to expre- express, <laughs> and and I I feel that you're wow. that that making even s- sometimes to play a character to to do something which is very clearly not you so yeah. in a way it, it is false right. let's say but um, it often enables you to be to be much more expressive. It, and yeah. in that sense, I think then you are more authentic. Yeah. So um, I'm glad you picked up on this word meeting because I, I feel in, in all these questions, it, it is a, a, a meeting. It's mm-hmm. a, a, and a meeting is not it's not 100% one side and zero the other. Right. But it's, neither is it 50-50. It, it's constantly changing. Right but it's feeling both aspects mm-hmm. in interacting. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. So
3: just to, to notice, for instance, when you're, you're singing a song, when the moments that feel like a struggle to you or a problem, mm. to especially notice in those moments, what is your voice actually naturally wanting to do?
2: Mm.
3: Not that you give into that completely, mm. but, but include it in mm. that passage of the music. And you may well be surprised what what, um, opens up for you.
0: Professor McQuire, this is amazing. I know you said you weren't sure about giving a vocal exercise, but you've just given like six. (laughs) (laughs) This is amazing. Um, Thank Thank you. you. Thank
3: you. It's been a pleasure. I'm glad to have had the exchange with you.
0: That's it. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll stay safe, stay strong, and return for my next episode when I plan to host musical theater scholar Donatella Galella, as well as sound designer and composer Andy Evan-Cohen. Until then...